Last time I was with you all, uh, we learned about the meaning of the fourth, or the third beatitude, and today we're going to look at the fourth beatitude. Before we do, though, I want to say thank you to Pastor Gaspar for preaching last week, and uh, I missed you all. I was in Poland uh, with our brothers and sisters there in, in Poland, and I, it was a wonderful experience to, to work with the pastors and the elders there, and it's humbling when you think about what other folk have to, the, the, the context in which they work. They deal with some of the same issues as we do here in North America, but there's less resources and, and, and less avenues of, of help in many ways. I talked to some of the pastors there who preach 51 out of 52 Sabbaths a year. They get one Sabbath off. I thought, wow. Uh, it almost wanted uh, Elder Rimmers to make me complain just a little bit less about various things, but uh, amen. <laughs> so, but we are, uh, I'm glad to be home. They, they asked me to send their greetings, and some of them said they'd be watching, so to our Polish friends in the Polish Union, we are uh, glad to have you joining us and all those that are joining us uh, live right now and will be joining us through Hope Channel. We are glad to have all of you here with us. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for the blessing of the worship service already. Speak to us now through your word, we pray in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, we learned the meaning and of the third beatitude in the book of Revelation last week, and if you, or two weeks ago, and if you weren't here, you can go home and watch that on another time on our YouTube channel, the Spencerville Church YouTube channel. But the context showed us that in those very last days, in those, uh, in those days around that time, that at some point in history, every person will make their decision either for or against God. This is what we refer to in our subculture of Adventism as the close of probation. And, and remember, and let me remind you, that, that the close of probation is not some arbitrary date that God has set, and, and he's going through the alphabet, and he gets to your name, and then boom, you're, you're in trouble. No, the close of probation is that God's given everybody the full opportunity to make a decision for or against him, and they've made their decision decisions, and then after that, we see when those decisions have been made that there's these seven last plagues, and this is in Revelation chapter 16. These seven last plagues that will fall upon the earth, seven acts of consequences for, for a world choosing sin over their Savior. And, and in the midst of that, those plagues, after the sixth plague, just before the seventh plague, there is this, there is this pause and John pauses and shares these words from Jesus, uh, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that, on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is the description of the people who have chosen Jesus and his righteousness, a people who are covered not by their own perfection, but who have allowed Jesus' perfection to cover them a people that, that have fully committed their lives and are watching and waiting and anticipating the coming of Jesus. And in that beatitude is also a promise for the people living in that time of destruction. The promise is this, you will not be, you will not be exposed to the plagues that are going on in those seven last plagues. You, you will be covered by the garments of Jesus. You will be blessed even in the midst of these trials and these tragedies. But immediately after this blessing comes the seventh and final plague in, in what is referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. 
Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, reads this way. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightnings and rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city, verse 19, was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink the cup of the wine of the, of the fury of his wrath. There will be this terrible moment in history. But it is important for us to understand what is happening here. This seventh plague seems even more horrific than the other plagues. It, it is longer than the previous six plagues. And it is reserved for a power known throughout the book of Revelation as Babylon. A power that has been used throughout history, an idea that has been used throughout history to deceive the people of God. A power and, a, and, a, and, a, and an entity that has been used throughout, throughout history to, to persecute the people of God, to, to kill even and destroy the people of God. This final plague is, is often titled and referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. Some people, and of course movies, have portrayed the Battle of Armageddon as, as some uh, actual climactic War, but really, it is a it is a it is a a, a ba battle between good and evil in the mind and in the the spiritual realms. Again, chapter sixteen, verse nineteen: the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. The next two chapters, chapter seventeen and chapters 18 are expansions on this verse, chapters 16 and verse 19. The chapters 17 and 18 are expansions on that verse. Chapter 17 is a, is a deeper description of end-time Babylon. It gives us a more full picture and the extent of, of the wrongs that Babylon has committed. It's almost like it's laying out the case for why Babylon deserves this final and most horrific plague. Babylon is referred to in, in Revelation chapter 17 as a prostitute, in some versions a harlot, or in other points a fornicating woman. But then we see the, the danger, the real danger behind this power. She, is, she has done the biddings of the devil, the beast here on earth, and the beast here on earth. Revelation chapter 17 verses 6 and 7, John wrote, uh, the, the angel spoke this to John. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Chapter 18 then continues this theme of the previous chapter. So chapter 17 shows us who this power is, and it unfolds this Babylonian power even more so. And then chapter 17 begins to show us the judgment against this power. And chapter 18 uh, shows us even more deeply this judgment against end-time Babylon. And then we come to chapter 19. So the end of chapter 16 starts to paint the picture of the final judgment against Babylon. Chapter 17 and 18 show the destruction of this end time power that was responsible for, for deceiving God's people, responsible for persecuting God's people, responsible for guilt, killing God's people. And when Babylon is finally defeated, what happens in chapter 19? When this, when this power that has been oppressive and 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 and, and destroying and, and harming and, and deceiving the people of God throughout history, when this power is finally destroyed, what happens? There's a celebration. 
There's a celebration. Have any of you ever overcome something? You've been struggling with something and finally you overcome it. It's like, oh, there's just this breath of fresh air, this, this freedom, there's this joy in your life. Maybe there's, there's something that's been opposing you in your life and, and finally that opposition is gone and, and there's just this freedom that comes and there's this joy that takes place. That's what begins to happen in, in Revelation chapter 19. If I could use a very earthly metaphor, a, a sports metaphor to, to maybe illustrate this. A couple years ago, some of you may remember, that the Chicago Cubs won the, the, the baseball, Major League Baseball's World Series. Do you remember that, a few of you? Are any of you Chicago Cub fans in here? There's a couple raised hands. Uh, I won't hold it against you. Um, it, has, it had been 108 years since they won the World Series. They they hold the record for the longest drought in the history of baseball of not having won a World Series. And articles were written about this, this, this fan group, the, the Cubs fans, as, as a tortured fan base, as, as, as a sorrowful, mournful fan base, as a fan base without hope. This is how this team was spoken of. They'd get close every now and then, but, but somehow uh, it was ripped away from them and they could never overcome and, res- and get the victory. Longest drought. But in 2016, that drought ended. In 2016, that drought ended. And if you read the articles about what happened when the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series after 108 years, you would think that, that, that this was the greatest event in history. People in Chicago flooded into the streets, weeping tears of joy. There's pictures of them. You can go online and look. People went to the, to the cemeteries where their family members were, were, were buried, family members who had been Cubs fans all their lives and never got to see the Cubs win, and they, they hung World Series flags on the, on the gravestones to, to say, you know, you couldn't see it in your, in your lifetime, but it finally happened. The Cubs won, and they were just thrilled. The Cubs actually won the World Series in uh, Cleveland, Cleveland actually is the second longest team, the Cleveland Indians. If you're a Cleveland Indians fan, you're the new record holder of longest drought without a World Series. Congratulations. But, but the, the, they won it in Cleveland, and they flew home late at night to Chicago, and, and they roll into Chicago on the plane, and there is the Chicago Fire Department with all their trucks lined up and the water squirting to, to welcome them home. And as, the, as they got on the buses, the police escorted them through the city. And even though it was early in the morning, people were already coming out and lining the streets. People, again, were acting like this was the greatest event ever in the history of mankind. We know how sports fans can be. And let us not judge lest we also be judged, all right? And I say that with me. I may or may not have cried over a few sporting events in my lifetime. The next day, they had the parade for the Chicago Cubs. And it is believed, it is estimated, that it was the largest gathering of humanity ever in the Western Hemisphere for the parade to celebrate the Chicago Cubs winning. This is how Sports Illustrated described uh, this gathering. It looked as if a seven-mile river of fountain pen blue ink had been spilled across the nation's third largest city. You can go online and see pictures of just this trail of blue throughout the city. One player spoke of the volume of the crowd. He said, when the people screamed, it was like nothing I had ever heard in my life. The Cubs had vanquished their foe. They had finally overcome 
this 108-year World Series drought, and all these Cub fans celebrated. And here is what I want you to understand. That celebration will pale in comparison to the celebration when Babylon, the enemy of God's people, is finally defeated. It won't be one city celebrating. It won't be one group of fans celebrating. The Bible tells us that all of heaven is rejoicing. Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. When this great enemy of God's people is finally defeated, heaven will rejoice imagine the greatest celebration you have ever been a part of in your life and it will pale in comparison to this moment in time that is what happens revelation 16 17 18 all these plagues all this destruction going on but but at the end of all that in revelation 19 there's a celebration because the enemy is finally defeated and god is going to be reunited with his people and all of heaven begins to rejoice Dr. Stefanovich refers to this as an explosion of joy, and I like that description, of an explosion of joy. The word they cry out, the word that they sing out, these elders and these, these four living creatures and, and all the, the inhabitants of heaven, the word that they, that they cry out again and again is hallelujah. Hallelujah, if you've grown up around uh, Christian folk, is a popular expression. Something we say, really, for all kinds of things. Someone puts good food in front of us, we say, hallelujah, a good meal. You know, we got a, a, a new car, hallelujah, I finally got rid of that old thing. Man, I'm so glad. Hallelujah. We, we use it for all kinds of things, very casually, with, without much thought. But did you know, and this is what I discovered in the study of this passage, that this word only appears in the New Testament in this chapter. In all the New Testament, the word hallelujah only appears four times in, the, in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. In other words, this word that we use all the time casually, oh, I got new shoes, hallelujah, these are so comfortable. This word that we use casually all the time, the Bible, the New Testament, God inspires it and, and, and reserves it only for this moment in time when finally the enemies of God are defeated and he will be reunited with his people. That's when the kingdom of heaven cries out, hallelujah. That is the moment of great rejoicing. Hallelujah comes from the Hebrew word halal to praise and yah God. Praise God. Praise God. I think that it is significant because this word that has come to mean so much in Christian settings and been used so randomly and casually is reserved to celebrate the defeat of the great earthly enemy of God's people. But it also celebrates another event, which is where we find the fourth beatitude in the book of Revelation, starting in verse 6, Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This is a different multitude now. This is the multitude on the earth. 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And what do they cry out as well? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us, result, uh, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made him herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The next set of hallelujahs are reserved for the celebration, the, the great heavenly wedding. And the great heavenly wedding, for those of you that don't know, is when Christ comes back to take us home to be with him for all eternity. That is the great heavenly wedding. And this is when God's people call out, hallelujah. The enemy is defeated, and now we finally get to see our Savior face to face. We finally get to be in the physical presence of our Lord and Savior. Just in the prior chapters to this, the relationship between Babylon and her followers is described as a relationship between a prostitute and, and her companions. This union, though, between God and his church is described as a wedding, as a beautiful and a pure event, a beautiful culmination after all kinds of trials, after all kinds of struggles, after all kinds of difficulties. Now, finally, those who have chosen to walk with Jesus are, are reunited with their Savior, It is then in the next verses that we find our beatitude. And the beatitude is simply in the context of reiterating what has just come before, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, who is invited? In one sense, everybody is invited. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Bible tells us that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord desires all to, to accept this invitation, all to be a part of his kingdom. So in, in one sense, the invitation comes out to everybody. But in the context here, in this beatitude, it is speaking of those who have accepted that invitation, who have, who have said, you know what, this invitation was for me and I accept it. We've all received invitations and tossed them out. But this is, this is speaking of, of someone who has accepted that invitation, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's two things I want to point out about this beatitude. I, I, the, what insights that I, that I think are beautiful about this beatitude. First is something I read in a commentary written by G.K. Beale. And I loved how he framed this. He talked about how if you look, you see that verses 7 and 8 in chapter 19 are a wedding metaphor. And so is verse 9. They're both wedding metaphors, but they are different. They are from different perspectives on the same event. In verses 7 and 8, the bride viewed is the corporate church, the body of Christ. And, 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 and the language unpacks this a little bit more. It's talking about the entire body of Christ. So everybody together is, is calling out hallelujah and praising God as a, as a united corporate body of God's people. The, the body of Christ finally united with, with its head, Jesus Christ. But in verse 9, Beale points out, now individual Christians are portrayed as guests at the marriage banquet. Both pictures portray the intimate communion of Christ with believers, but the first focuses on, on the corporate church and the second on individual members of that church. It is as if God said, yes, this is about uh, my entire body, the church, being reunited with me, but I want my children in that body. I want each individual one of those children in that body to know that they, that their name is on my heart, that their name is on my mind, and that they personally and individually are invited to be a part 
of this great wedding day. An invitation with your name on it to the greatest event in the history of mankind. What an amazing thing. An invitation with your name on it. I mean, I don't know if, if generations now have the same thing, but when you get that, that, that invitation, or when you get that letter, or when you got that, that note at school that, with your name on it, there was something special that it had your name on it. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this young lady that I knew. I think it was fifth or sixth grade. It was 1989, uh, and she sang this song, uh, Part of Your World, from the movie Little Mermaid. Do any of you remember the movie Little Mermaid? You can be honest. Okay. Do you remember it? All right, there you go. Part of your world. She sang this song, and I only knew the movie because, I mean, I had two sisters. That's the only reason I was aware. But, but, but she sang this song, and I was suddenly smitten. Her name was Carrie. I, I think I remember her last name, but I won't say it to, to avoid her the embarrassment. But, but I was suddenly smitten with this girl, Carrie, fifth or sixth grade. I don't remember exactly what it was and how beautiful she sang. And I remember one day out at recess, because we were in different classes, because Loma Linda was a very large school, so we had multiple classrooms for every grade. And I remember one day out at recess, she walked up to me, and she handed me something. Do you remember the notes that we used to give to, to, to each other, and we would fold them a certain way? This morning, I, I did it just to see if I could still remember how we did it, and I was able to do it. You know, I even got the little tab and everything. You guys remember these? This is, this is my little note. I made this. I don't know where her note is. I'm sorry I don't have it. That would have been really awesome if I still had that, although it would be a little creepy, too, that I had that from fifth or sixth grade. But, but I remember she walked up to me at recess, and she handed me this note, and it had my name on it, had the name Chad on it. And I remember it was colored, like there was different colors on it. I have no idea what it said, but I remember, like that's the first note I remember receiving with my name on it. And there was something about receiving this note, this personal note with my name on it, Chad. I think there was a flowers and maybe even a little heart. We won't, shh. But um, it was such this, this moment. There's something about a personal invitation. And the beatitude, the fourth beatitude in the book of Revelation it goes from this corporate down to this personal thing. You too are invited. Your name is on my list, and I'm inviting you personally. What an amazing thing. Personalness of God. But there is a second point I want you to see in this fourth beatitude. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, this is a key point, these are the true words of God. John personalizing this wedding invitation to us individually. And then he puts this phrase in, or the, the angel speaks this phrase, these are the true words of God. Uh, this is added to, to affirm that this promise is trustworthy and true. This is not just the angel saying, this is not just John saying, these are the true words of God. Confirmation that this invitation is the unfailing word of God. Why is that so important to John, for John to express in this moment? Why is it so important for the readers to hear that in, in John's day, but also why is it so important for us to hear that in our day as well? Quickly recap, Revelation chapter 8 and 9. The first plagues fall on the earth, and there is destruction everywhere. And there, we are all uh, uh, have received the consequences of these plagues and these struggles that are going on in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Horrific things because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Revelation 12, 13, and 14 are a picture of this great controversy between Christ and Satan, this, this battle going on for our minds and our hearts for our worship, whether we're going to worship the one true God or whether we're going to worship the false gods of the, of the beast and of Babylon, a battle for our hearts. Revelation chapter 15 and 16, the seven last plagues, great calamity and horror following, falling on the face of the earth. Revelation 17 and 18, we get to see up close what Babylon really is and all the things that they've done to us and how they've deceived us and how they've persecuted us and how they've killed us. But ultimately, the destruction of Babylon comes. And then there is Revelation chapter 19. So why is it important for him to put in this, 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 this beatitude and say, and this is true, you can trust this, this is a promise that you can trust. Why is it so important for him to add that little bit? The reason is, is because if folk are reading this, which includes you and I, then that means that we are somewhere between Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 18. When we get to Revelation chapter 19, we're not going to be reading this anymore. We're going to be celebrating. Babylon is defeated, and we're united face-to-face with Jesus Christ. We're going to be celebrating. We're not going to be, 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 be reading this anymore, but, but that means if we're reading this, that we're somewhere between chapter 8 and chapter 18. And what does that mean? That means that there are struggles and trials and difficulties and pain and suffering going on all around us. And God wants to remind us that even though there's this difficulties going on, even though there's these trials and the suffering and this, and, this, and this difficulty in our life, even though we're worn out time and again because of this broken relationship or that, that broken friendship or because of, because of this loss of a loved one God wants to remind us in the midst of all this there still is hope because a wedding is coming these words are true these words are true one day the doors of the church metaphorical church are going to open and the bride and the groom are going to stand and see each other face to face and there will be no event like it ever Christine and I did not have an easy few months leading up to our wedding. Christina was finishing her, her BS in nursing at the time, and I was uh, getting ready to go to the seminary. I'd already graduated, but I was working and getting ready to go to the seminary. Christina was also trying to plan a wedding at the same time as she was finishing up her, her, her nursing degree. And this made it more challenging for someone like me. It would have been no problem because I would have been like, okay, I'm going to plan the wedding I'll pass, we'll move on. But you know, Christina's a good student, so summa cum laude, I always want to brag about her three different times. Summa cum laude, three, some of you made it one time, summa cum laude, she's done it three different times, all right? Uh, uh, summa cum laude, and so she had to be planning the wedding and, and still getting her good grades. And uh, we discovered something as we were planning that wedding, there was something that Christina and I discovered that, that you have to make a lot more people happy in planning a wedding than just the bride and the groom. Did you guys know this about a wedding? There's other people that think that they get a say in what everything happens and how everything goes. So Christina was doing that and dealing with some of those issues, we'd say. And I was doing my thing. And then at the beginning of May, she went out to California to work on the wedding, and I went to seminary to find us a place to live Christina was dealing with family stuff and kind of having that stress. 
And I was just dealing with having to grow up in this realization like, oh man, I'm going to be married and I got to find a place to live for me and another person. And, and oh, it can't be like a one room in some random place. And uh, there actually has to be a bathroom and a kitchen and things like this. And I was like, I've got I've to grow up. And I was dealing with that. And we're trying to talk, you know, uh, over the phone and all these things about all of these various things that are going on. And it was not an easy month, that, that May into June month. And then a couple weeks before the wedding, I headed out to California for the last couple weeks to, to just be out there and to spend time with Christina. I had done my first couple classes at, at seminary, and now I was getting a break, and so I was going to go out there and be with Christina. Now, I remember something. I remember men telling me this. So men, if you've ever said this to another person, just take it, don't tell it to anybody anymore. I, I don't... Uh, I would just say that if you've said what I'm about to say, you're a liar and the truth is not in you, especially if you've met Christina's family. But I was told that if you, sh all you have to do as the groom is show up and say I do and you're good. <laughs> so in my mind, that was my expectation. I'm going to go out to California, I'm going to hang out, I'm going to play golf, and I'm going to show up and say I do. And I showed up and I was given this list by Christina's mom of things that I needed to accomplish before the, uh, before the wedding actually took place. And being the, uh, the immature young man that I was and not being as, uh, as enlightened as I hope I am now, I was a little bit bothered by this list. And so there was some conflict over this list and all the things that I had to do. Now we're trying to raise our sons with much more uh, awareness. So whatever ladies eventually marry my sons, they're gonna be very helpful. Uh, we're making sure of that. But I wasn't the most helpful, and so there was some conflicts there. And then the wedding weekend came, and I recall that there was some drama with one of the bridesmaids, and then, and then one of my groomsmen, we were, we were, we were goofing around, uh, roughhousing in the swimming pool, and he accidentally elbowed me in the face, and my eye split open, and I had no medical insurance. And so my father-in-law said, well, I'm a doctor. I can do it. And I went to his office to get him to stitch me up. Only problem is he hasn't stitched anybody up in like 20 years, and so his shaky hand is like there. <laughs> and coming towards my eye with that needle. And, uh, and so in all of our wedding pictures, they're kind of like, is there something wrong with Chad's eye? Yes, there's makeup, and because I had this big black eye, and, and on our honeymoon, I was the abused spouse because we went on the honeymoon, and I had double black eyes. Uh, so, so things were just kind of, kind of uh, chaotic. And my in-laws wanted me to preach the day before we got married, and not being a full-time preacher yet, and also not having gone through a wedding weekend before, I had no, how, no idea how exhausting both those things were, and so I was totally exhausted. Then the, on Sunday morning, the day we got married, my friends and I, we drove a couple hours south early in the morning to go to my uncle's country club and play a round of golf. And by the way, I did play a really good round of golf. That was one of the things that did go really right that day. But I played a really good round of golf. But we had been up almost the whole night before, and our tea time was at 6.30, and we played our round of golf, and then we had to hustle back up to, to, to Turlock, California, so that I could get married. And all my groomsmen were like, man, we're too tired to drive. You're going to have to drive. My groomsmen, if you're watching, you're bums. They made me drive, and they all slept in the car while we drove up there. We get up to where we're getting ready, and I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, I realize I've lost my wedding vows that I had written and worked on spending time in writing. I made a mistake. I called Christina. I told her I lost my wedding vows. She wasn't so thrilled with this. She's like, so you're just going to throw something together? 
I said, hey, I'm a preacher. I can do it, which was not a good thing to say either. I should have said, I love you. It's all in my heart. It's all there. Went to the church, and our flower girl wasn't cooperating, and she was refusing to take pictures, and she was randomly yelling and running off and crying and hiding behind her mom, and and it was, just, it was just a little bit chaotic. And the custodian of the church had forgotten to turn on the air conditioner of the church. And it was 110 degrees July 13 in California, and uh, in, in central California. And we're there in the church sweating and my makeup's running from my eye. And then there was overlaying everything else. Over the entire weekend and everything else, there was Christina's family and my family merging and mingling together. And and let us just say this, they are very different. Christina's family is, is, they are good and proper church folk. And my family are rednecks with records. That's That's what my family are. And so, and so we, we, it, was just, it was just this crazy time. And so Christina's family, we had the big family photo, and there was like 50 people. The entire stage was covered with Christina's family member. And for mine, there was like 10. Because my family, even though they live right there too, they knew what time pictures were, so they decided to show up a little bit later. You know, rednecks with records. This is the way we do things. We're rebels. It would have been even less than 10, except for we, we pulled in my grandma, Liz, who really isn't my grandma. We pulled in my, my uncle, Bill, who really isn't my uncle. He's a Japanese dentist that one day just showed up on my grandma's front porch and started eating with them, and they, they became family. And, uh, and, and, so, and so we had these people in our wedding pictures, and people say, oh, how are you related to them? I don't know. They just, they're there. This is always very uncomfortable to my, my wife's very refined uh, family. And then there was all kinds of other things around the weekend, like me leaving my passport in Michigan, which we needed to go on our honeymoon, kind of a big thing, and the car that was supposed to transport us to our reception breaking down, and so we had to get in the back seat of uh, the photographer's uh, car, and he had a Geo Metro, and I don't know if you ever remember a Geo Metro, try to get a bride into the back seat of a Geo Metro. and it wasn't because I didn't let her have the front seat. It's just that he, there was really no front seat. We had to just get in the back of the, of the Geo Metro. And I thought it was a great idea. I told Christina. She had originally said, why don't we just have a small wedding at the beach with just a few people? And I said, no, we need to get married in a church. And, and, and all your family want to have everybody there. I should have listened to my wife. Two years later, my sister got married on a beach. I said, man, we should have got married on a beach too. And she just looked at me and But I told her, not only should we get married in a church, but I said, we should dismiss every row ourselves. I had no idea how popular Christina and her family are. And we had to hug 500 people. I mean, I love hugs. Kara, can you imagine hugging 500 people? Five people. 500 people. It was insane. It was insane. That was our entire wedding weekend. To say the least, it was a bit chaotic. But all that to say that at one moment, I'm standing there, and I turn and I look, and the doors of that church opened up, and I look, and there is my bride, just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, and she's smiling at me, and I'm kind of partly smiling back at her, trying not to cry. 
and everything else that went wrong, it was all made okay because of that moment. The singular greatest moment other than me accepting Jesus Christ. Folks, why does God want us to be sure that this promise is true, that there is a wedding coming? Because everything else is chaotic. Everything else is in, is in turmoil. There's loss, there's pain, there's suffering, there's hurt, there's disease. And yet God wants us to be sure that these words are true, that one day the doors will open and the bride and the groom will stand face to face. We will be with our Lord. And all of the rest of it that we've had to go through, it won't matter because of seeing Jesus face to face. This is the fourth beatitude of Scripture. I have told you these things, John chapter 16, verse 33, so that in me you may have peace, and in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That is the promise of the fourth beatitude. In this world you will have trouble, but these words are faithful and true. A wedding is coming.